Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Margaret Malloy, Chief Marketing Officer for Siegel & Gale, host of the fantastic How CMOs Commit podcast, and board member to many organizations throughout the world. She grew up in Ireland and initially started working in government before moving to the US and taking up the opportunity to study at Harvard and then lead organizations in the US. Today, as the CMO of Siegel & Gale, a leading brand strategy designed and experience agency, she's working in a very emergent space with new technologies and trends that she needs to communicate simply but make clients stand out. She's a huge proponent of diversity, inclusion, and runs amazing panels with global CIOs on a regular frequency. In fact, that's how we found each other, connecting through podcasts and listening and following one another's work. So in this show, we have a chance to dive into a lot of her work, both in bringing diverse groups together, but clearly and crisply communicating why simple is smart in her role as CMO. So let's get started and see what are some of the core principles that have helped her focus and help people communicate simply and smartly. I study topics deeply to understand them profoundly, to be able to communicate them simply. And in that experience, the big aha was actually the evolution of my thinking from classically trained MBA program that teaches you to be really wise at nuance and really good at complicating things. We learn in business school how to appreciate many dimensions of a topic. And in turn, it kind of lends itself to jargon and to complexity. And we're often, frankly, complexifiers. But when I head over to Siebel Systems and those skills were well deployed and subsequent jobs in my career, but then I land at Siegel and Gale and I realized this agency values simplicity. And that's a little bit of an adjustment to be able to boil down a brand, in our case, to its essence. What is the DNA of that brand? And to be able to articulate that in words that are plain and simple, yet very engaging, and a visual identity that's clean, but very compelling. So that's the art and the science. And it's certainly been a journey for me and a journey for many brands that are our clients. This notion of elevating the value of simplicity. Interestingly enough, Barry, in this current time of COVID-19 and social injustice and healthcare pandemic and economic unrest, the notion of simplicity is even more important than ever before. Because all of us are experiencing what I characterize as a cognitive tax on ourselves and to be able to simplify and for brands to be able to provide users and people in general with simple experiences, I believe the buying public, buyers, consumers will reward that of brands who truly appreciate the opportunity to remove that cognitive tax. Or as they say in Silicon Valley, where you spend your time removing friction. It's all about removing friction. Simplicity is just another way to say removing friction. 
Yeah, it's just fascinating what you're saying to me and resonates so much. Like I see, especially in technology, right? Like smart people love to complexify to your word things like it turns into jargon. Yes. You're so right. And it's such a great power. Like the world is so noisy when you can create these simple, clearly understood messages like that's what connects with people. And, and as I'm hearing you saying that, I just think of all the great things that I understand very easily, just communicate really simply. It's super fascinating to hear when people share that. Now, one of the other things I know that's really top of mind for you, though, is not only just the simplicity of communication, but actually having broad sets of diverse voices to represent these communities, right? Like we've been through COVID-19, we've been through and we've just had the finding on the George Floyd case as well recently. And I know one thing that's really, you know, shines to me, not only in the work that you do, but also the communities that you build both on your own podcast and the constant live streams you're doing where you bring CMOs from all over these brands you work with together to talk about simplicity and communication and branding. What were some of your twists and turns on that sort of voyage to bring such a broad group of voices together? Because I, I don't see so many people be able to achieve what you're doing so well. Well, thank you for the question, because you're exactly right, Barry. From a personal value perspective, this is really important to me. By way of background, at Siegel and Gale, we sell to chief marketing officers around the world. And for many years, a key part of my job was traveling from city to city, doing in-person roundtables, essentially very lovely lunches where I would convene CMOs in that area and talk about various dimensions of brand building, always with that underlying philosophy of simplicity. And I developed the program together with my colleagues and took a lot of pride in it. One milestone event, however, affected me more than any other. About four years ago, I was hosting one of these roundtables in Boston. I was very proud of it. The conversation was flowing. I had four panelists representing four different industries. I had even distribution of gender. And the conversation was very engaged. So a lot of self-congratulation among our team <laughs> was happening at this lunch. And the food was delightful and the venue special. So we gave it a high score. Very proud of ourselves. Meanwhile, I get back to my office and check my email. And among the congratulatory and appreciative emails from many of the guests was a very poignant one. One of my guests, a black man, CMO of a local company in Boston, said something to the following effect. Margaret, your event was titled The Future of Branding. The conversation was very engaging. However, if you think that panel that you presented today represented the future of branding, you're sorely mistaken. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you do better in the future. Well, that email really struck me because at that moment, I realized I had an all-white panel and I was so focused on gender. Essentially, race was my blind spot. And my first reaction, quite honestly, was quite defensive. I said to myself, well, why is he putting the burden on me to articulate the future of branding from a representation perspective? We're a private enterprise. I'm a commercial entity. And shortly after that, I caught myself and I realized I had just received probably 
the most constructive feedback I had ever received in my career. So I called my team in and I said, colleagues, today we're going to make a change. From this moment onwards, I will never sit on or host a panel that's not racially diverse. I had made a similar commitment, not as directly vis-a-vis gender, but now it was race took center stage. And ever since that day, I have worked to build my network and extend myself to make sure that I have diverse representation on our panels. And the panels that you've been referencing, our Future of Branding series, we have hosted a couple of dozen of those since COVID began online. And we're really pleased that so many CMOs from different brands have accepted our invitation to be part of that conversation. What is remarkable about that is that after the George Floyd incident, I noticed a lot of other entities rushing around to find diverse representation. That wasn't such a challenge for me because over the past number of years, have really built that network. And I think you talk a lot so profoundly about unlearning. And when I'm thinking about this episode in my growth, the unlearning there was the realization that I grew up, quite honestly, with a mental model where the aspiration was to be colorblind, almost a pretense that you didn't appreciate or didn't notice race, that race didn't matter. So for me, I was proud that I was colorblind. I didn't factor in race in any of my activities. And now, based on that experience and watching the work of Melanie Hobson and others, I realize the goal and the learning opportunity is to be color brave, to extend yourself to others from a different race so you build inclusion. And that's a huge unlearning because I thought I arrived when I'm colorblind, job done. Not so. I have to unlearn that and learn a new paradigm. And it's been extraordinarily powerful for my growth and the growth of our CMO community. One final point I'll make to this story. When I returned to Boston the following year, I was the guest of a very large entity asked me to host their CMO panel. And the first person on my guest list to join me on the panel was our friend who gave me the good counsel. And I reached back to him and he was gracious and accepted the invitation. We had a wonderful panel. I asked him afterwards, Paul, why did you extend yourself to me? That was very courageous of you. And he firstly said is, I thought you were open to it. I felt you'd be willing to learn, which I appreciated. The second point he made is I was sharing my knowledge. The year previous to that, someone told him that his aperture was limited because he was hosting events and he was focused on race and gender, but he had neglected the LGBTQ community. So his blind spot and his unlearning inspired him to essentially invest in my growth and invest in the CMO community. So for me, that's a poignant story of growth, but a lovely story of passing along your learning to someone else. It's fabulous, right? Like I, I love these types of unlearning moments, especially when people share like what, what are difficult messages sometimes to hear. And I love this idea you say from colorblind to color brave. And brave is a really interesting word. Brave to get outside your comfort zone, brave to 
get information or feedback that's contrary with what you believe to be true of yourself, right? Like, I think these are some of the most special things. I think being open to hearing it is what I constantly find is the hardest part of that. Like hearing information that is contrary to your mental model of the world or of yourself, often our reaction can be defensive, but yet you're able to have, uh, see it as curiosity. And that's so special. You know, it's so special when people hear that. You know, one of the fun stories I share in the book of Unlearn was even Serena Williams, you know, after she was knocked out of the first round of the Grand Slam in Paris, you know, a coach approached her and gave her some pretty contrary feedback from what she had been hearing from a lot of people. And instead of sort of rejecting it, her reaction was, that's interesting. Let's work on it. That coach, uh, Patrick Marmfour, her and him together went on to just, she's getting better as she gets older, right? She's getting to more finals of Grand Slams than she ever has, because she was open to this sort of contrary going against what she had heard before, but curiosity to pursue new information. So how have you sort of opened yourself to that? Because, you know, these are tough topics, whether it's race, uh, you know, obviously gender, just generally your belief as someone who has so much experience in a field to hear somebody say something different to that, that challenges your thinking, to get past a defensive moment, to see it as a gift, which you obviously have. And even the way you talk about it is paying it forward. It's uh, just as Paul obviously did, paid it forward to you. And I'm sure many, many people have experienced that themselves. So how did you get through that moment of the defensiveness to like the opportunity here? And you've obviously gone on and really committed to getting sort of comfortable being uncomfortable and finding ways to sort of grow that um, in yourself. And, and obviously it shows up in the panels that you're creating. I think the heart and soul of it is curiosity. And what I've learned over the years is that curiosity and judgment can't coexist. So if you're curious, you can't be judging at the same time. Inherently, the two are opposed. Now, in my own personal journey, that's a learning on reflection. In reality, it's hard. People who are, if you will, high achieving in a field, can struggle with constructive feedback. So, and I am no different from that. It's something I work on. It's a work in progress. But the unlock for me is to take that posture of curiosity. That's a really helpful way to move from analyzing or judging yourself to growing and asking questions as opposed to defending your posture. And that's been the journey And that's been the unlock, but it's not a natural posture because if it's in a field where you're quite, you feel you're quite accomplished, it's even more difficult. I never had any problems with getting feedback on my cooking or my exercise (laughs) routines or many areas where I believe I have nothing acclaim worthy. But when it's in your day job or when it's in something, that's why I intentionally chose the word proud because I was quite proud of our programming. So it's even harder to take constructive feedback in an area where you think you are proud of something. But curiosity, Barry, that's the unlock. I've learned, you know, the funny thing, the more experience I have and the older I've become, I've actually become more curious. Because at early in your career, 
you're expected to know the answers back to your unlearning paradigm, which is so powerful. The unlearning for me is that you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, your impact is much more a function of your ability to frame good questions. Right on. That's all, all I can say to that one. You know, you're reminding me of a, one of my favorite examples of this actually was running one of the boot camp programs with the exec team at British Airways. And the CTO had this great idea for a booking platform. And, you know, this is someone who's been like 25 years in the airline industry, knows it inside and out. Their expertise, in a way, is sort of profound, right on the topic. And they were convinced they had this perfect solution to a booking airline ticketing problem. And, uh, you know, the thing we convinced them to do was instead of just start building, it was to build a small prototype and show it to customers. And, you know, they didn't want to, but they built this prototype and went and we got a customer to test it with. And the test went terrible. The customer just got had no idea what the hell they were talking about. And the initial reaction was that from the CTO was, oh, this is the wrong customer. Get me another one. Um, so we got another one and, and another one and another one. And we were like four cycles into this. And to your point of reflection, you know, I sat down with them and I was like, you know, what do you think the problem's here? And they're like, OK, the idea sucks. It's not the customer. But it was this really amazing moment because it, it and to your point on curiosity, it reactivated their curiosity. Like they recognized that their expertise was a blind spot. And in fact, really the way to think about this is rather than am I right, it's how could I find out am I right? Or what could I do to sort of test my assumptions of the world? Maybe they're hypotheses, maybe they're things like questions to your point that I need to find answers to. And that person went on to be, I think, one of the best experimenters I ever saw because it just reignited them. They started thinking about better questions rather than having to have all the answers. And you're right as well. I see that pattern even in my own career is you feel like when you start off, you have to have the answers. Harvard Business School teaches people to have the right answer, you know, and yet the most powerful part is better questions as you sort of progress in a way. And that, that's a huge breakthrough. So how does this start to show up now in the work, some of the things you're doing today, right? Like you've got to help brand leaders sort of see this transition, even in their own, in their own companies, right? Because even the notion of brand has, has become so important in this world of hyper-connectivity, of the social media, of so much information. And as you said, complexifying, I love that word now, of messages about what we're doing. And the thing that cuts through is simplicity, which I love too as well. Can, can you share a little bit about some of the transitions you've seen in your area of expertise and, and some of the things you've had to debunk in a way of your own notions of what, what good was? Well, that's so interesting. So to anchor on sort of definitions, first thing I would say is back in the day, brand was all about words and pictures, the logo, the visual identity, the strap line, the verbal identity. The big transition now is it's gone from words and pictures to experiences. So if you appreciate that paradigm shift, it introduces a whole area of exploration for CMOs and brand leaders. How do we create experiences that resonate with our customers and indeed with the community? 
few things of the many that I would highlight that are top of mind right now. In hosting the CMO panels, which you can hear on the How CMOs Commit podcast, one of the hot questions for all brands to explore is this notion of stakeholder capitalism. Again, back to our training, classically trained MBAs, the Milton Friedman Doctrine was all about the supremacy of shareholder value. It's all about if you optimize for shareholder value, everything takes care of itself. Well, what we are learning now at this moment is that particularly COVID-19 has lifted the veil on that to reveal that the way we've been doing business and keeping score, GDP, shareholder value, return on earnings is not fit for purpose. It's illuminated myriad dysfunctions, challenges with our supply chains, with the vulnerabilities that businesses have created, and it's put a renewed emphasis on purpose. Companies now are thinking about what is their purpose. One of the implications is a renewed emphasis on the planet, connection, and environmental sustainability. And companies are now getting a heightened conviction that brands can be a force for good in the world and do good and do well at the same time. So that whole conversation presents myriad opportunities. And companies that I talk to are recognizing that having a brand purpose that's distinctive and meaningful has many implications beyond the obvious potential for engendering customer loyalty. It's also galvanizing employees. It's attracting investors with the growth in ESG investing. And it's helping them reimagine ecosystems where community, brand, and even public sector can collaborate for shared outcomes. So this whole conversation around purpose, and we see at the extreme, perhaps an entity like a Patagonia, who's taking this into activism, to at another stage, CVS Health, that has articulated a purpose, helping people on a path to better health, and how they're activating that started with removing tobacco from the stores. To other companies who are thinking about their net zero commitments. So everywhere along the spectrum, from activism to perhaps lower in the spectrum commitments, companies are really thinking about what is our purpose? Or said differently, what's the intersection between what we do to make money and how we help society and how we inspire employees? That's the hot conversation right now. Oh, it's just so interesting to me, right? Like, And so here's what I keep seeing. And it's sort of a little bit back to this other point which is sort of an underlying principle that I heard even from your diversity and inclusion piece. COVID has radically changed the way we think about the world and people, how they've experienced working with different types of companies. What did the companies do when people were under pressure? Did they help their customers? Were they there for them? Right. It's, it's, so simple examples. You know, one example was Tesco Bank, where I was working with. And a simple change that they made that really helped their customers was they have this notion of tap pay, right? And there's a sort of threshold normally of about 20 pounds that you can tap. And as long as it's tapped, it will do the function. But when people were doing shopping during COVID, that 20 pounds is not how much people spend on shopping and it's touchless, right? Like you don't have to interact. It creates their customer's safety. 
So they, they took a risk and they increased that threshold across the board so people could pay contactlessly, right? But with higher thresholds and the bank take on a little bit more risk to make their customers safe, right? As an example of trying to live some of the, the brand loyalties that they have. Now I see and hear people recognize that this is a big trend. And yet the companies who have lived on the notion of shareholder value, return on investment, very inwardly focused sort of values, people are starting to see that now because they've, they've had negative experiences. And now this sort of, in a way, they're trying to rush to sort of build this sort of ability then to sort of have a purpose that they believe in. And I think it's a real, real challenge, right? Where people can see through that. If your purpose is just words on a wall and it sounds, you know, do good for the world, but your actions are sort of contrary to that. I've seen the effect that has on the perception or the experience to your word of the brand. And I've also seen, you know, I run this mastermind with 120 execs uh, with Slack. And one of the things that has been hard for many companies who are in that sort of bucket of espoused values, but actions that don't live it, is that people don't want to work for them anymore. They can't attract talent because they see the amazing things that healthcare companies are doing, or they see things, as you mentioned, with CVS, who are Patagonia, obviously being almost like a, a way out there sort of outlier. But they're asking themselves, like, what companies represent my values that I want to associate myself with and where I want, like, who do I want to help? Do I want to make financial transactions go faster for high net worth individuals? Or do I want to do something meaningful in public health to help the underserved community with the capabilities and the privileges that I've had? That's where people are sitting thinking now. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting change and shift, I think, that the, a global pandemic has really surfaced. I'm curious about how like, you're helping companies do the right thing, because like, I'm sure everyone wants to do the right thing. But in many ways, it was probably a blind spot to them as well. So how, how are you helping them see that and then and sort of make the adjustments that they probably want to make? You're exactly right, Barry. Various companies are at different stages in the journey. Broadly speaking, I think most recognize there's a need. And I think for me, I start, as you wouldn't be surprised, by asking some questions. So <laughs> yeah. I'll throw out a few questions that companies can think about. And this is part of the journey at Siegel & Gale we would take them on. Because at Siegel & Gale, our job can often be to work with these companies to help articulate a promise articulate the purpose and make sure it's ownable by them, that it resonates in the market, and then most importantly, help them think about how that purpose comes to life. Where come to life is defined by how people experience the brand at every touch point. And people is defined by customers, employees, the community, investors. So that's the work that we would do but I personally would ask a handful of questions. The first one, how prepared is your brand for this wave of stakeholder capitalism and focus on inclusive growth? Number two, how well do you understand what stakeholders value? Three, 
Do you have a brand purpose that resonates broadly? Four, how is your brand showing up? Five, do you know where your brand can travel? Especially important if you believe you have a journey to go on. And ultimately, do you have a plan for your brand to create value for all stakeholders and a plan to communicate the value? Or will your brand be left behind, mired in inertia, or worse yet, nostalgia for how it used to be? Those are the hard questions I would pose to brand leaders. Yeah, no, they're brilliant. I'm literally just sitting here, like running them through my mind going, wow, these are tough questions to think about. But that's always the sort of measure of great questions for me, right? Is does do my does my mind start sort of spinning straight away going, God, have we really thought about everyone, how we're going to reach out to them, how we're going to communicate to them? Yeah, fascinating stuff. That's uh, really, really interesting. So how do you devise those questions, I think is also a, a fun way, like, What's helped you formulate? Because I can imagine right now there's a bunch of listeners like pausing and going back, like they're they're sort of rewriting these and sort of like taking notes. How do you help yourself sort of ask those tougher questions that lead to like profound insights? Because I know I'm going to go back and listen to this and write down those questions and, and start working through them. How do you help formulate them for yourself? Personally, I study deeply around a topic. So I will read the materials. I will talk to CMOs, which I have the privilege of doing in my work, and then just think hard. A fancy way of saying, I guess, reflection. So, (laughs) I mean, basically, that's it. It's doing the homework. I was that little Irish girl who was a good student. So did her homework. So I'll do my homework. And then I'll just try to create space to reflect. And that's something I have done more recently than in the past, because in the past, it was all hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, which is sort of my bias for action. I have a strong bias for action. I need to develop that bias for reflection. But by forcing myself to host these podcasts or specifically the live webinars that become podcasts and the time commitment inherent in that, it forces you to synthesize. So the panels have been a forcing function to help me be more thoughtful in my questions because time isn't infinite in those settings and also more rigorous in my homework. Yeah, it's brilliant, right? And in many ways, you've created then the environment to bring those questions to bear, right? With a community where you see the reaction. It's like those, I think, isn't it the thing where when you find great questions, you, people always have to pause for a minute and, and go, oh, I have to think about this. And I, well, I think that's a, always a fun little signal, right? Well, isn't that it, though? Because sometimes you think you know something and it's not until you ask a question. As I tell to my sons, the ultimate way to determine if you know something is to try to teach it to another. And it's a test. And you think you understand this topic because it's intuitively appealing. But then when you're forced to ask a question, Often the way I approach things is I frame a question because that's the ultimate test of my understanding. And then when you have a question in your mind, you go looking for the answer as opposed to passively reading material or listening to material. That's why I was so intrigued by the premise of your book and your podcast about unlearning. For the last couple of weeks, that's the question that's been in my mind. What am I unlearning? And previously, I never thought about it that way. But now that's a question. 
And in anticipation of this conversation, it's the one I've been processing. But I had it as a question in my mind. That's very kind. Thank you. And and again, it shows your curiosity because you obviously listened to a show and you reached out uh, afterwards to, and that's how we've connected, which has been fantastic. And I, I really appreciate that. But all of these things seem to just reinforce each other, right? The propensity to be curious, to ask the question, to simplify. I think that's one that really interesting. The best way to teach it's other people if you understand a topic and how simply you can communicate it to them. Again, it, I think all of these things sort of reinforce each other. One of my other favorite people on the show was Gibson Biddle, who, who was uh, the chief product officer for Netflix. And he used to force himself every week as he would, he would sort of come up with these questions he wanted to ask himself. And he'd try and do a presentation about them two weeks later to his team. Yes. And it could be anything from like, you know, what's a cool analytics platform or what is some trend in terms of what people are watching in, I don't know, uh, Asia Pacific region and why we should care about that. And so he created this sort of forcing function, like as you're equating to like asking a question, doing some homework and sharing it with people. It's actually really inspired me when I hear both you and him use that method, I think is really that's when I get most activated is when I, I people are like, oh, how, how am I going to solve a problem I've never done before? It focuses your research or your, your study and your, your questions, I think, is really powerful. So for you then, like looking ahead, like what, what are some of the things you're most excited about, maybe in the direction of travel with branding? Or what do you think are some of these sort of next questions in a way we're, we're going to have to answer? I, I love this idea of the transition, you know, to brand experiences and stakeholder capital. It's just really fabulous ideas. What are some of the next set of questions you're noodling on at the moment or excited about? I believe those are the key ones. This evolution of brand to experience, how and how that manifests at every touch point, how purpose will play out. You talked about ostensibly the notion of greenwashing, where people plaster on purpose. Yeah, on yeah, top. yeah, great. So, I've never you heard know, that word greenwashing and taking that one as well. Brilliant. <laughs> Well, or purpose washing or however we want to characterize it. So how consumers and constituents can discern between the authentic and those who are greenwashing. I think it's really powerful. A third thing that I'll mention, because I thought of it as I listened to you discuss product, this evolution from marketers focusing on buyers to users. So if you're focused on buyers, most of your marketing resources time and budget is spent on promotional activities. We call it demand generation, awareness marketing. And the preponderance of the marketer's effort stops when the cash register rings. Well, I believe directionally, the brands who are more evolved in their thinking, think of people as users. And the implication of that is marketing is more tightly coupled with product because the usability of the product comes into focus. Also, the emphasis on building communities and customer loyalty. And this notion of usage-based marketing versus purchase-based brands also has implications for what the marketer cares about. So if you're focused on promotion, you want your content to you know, potentially get an award at a can, for example. But if you're focused on usage, you care more about that Yelp review or what customers are saying to each other about your product. So that to me is a fascinating journey 
and its implications for resourcing. A final asterisk I put at the end of that is this idea of developing product out loud. Again, I'll equate it back to unlearning. Back in the day when I was early in my career in product, there was a veil of secrecy around the features and the functions that were going to be in a particular release. And that had all kinds of code names associated with it. And no way would one divulge which feature was going to get prioritized over another. Well, now look at how, for example, Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces are creating their products. Yesterday, Sunday morning, 12 noon, I was tuned into the Clubhouse Town Hall. And in that town hall, Paul was revealing all the features that were upcoming and answering questions from users. What a different mental model of how to build product. Fascinating distinction. So the core of your question was around what to look out for. I would say look out for companies as, who build product out loud, as opposed to the old paradigm where everything is veiled and a ribbon of suspense is tied around the release, as opposed to an opportunity for participation and anticipation. Vastly different. To so eloquently put, you know, like, I love this because this is my world, right? Like, I, I, I think it's such a great transition. And it's definitely one of the things I look for in product development is, are they learning in the market? Are they sharing in the market? Or are people held on to this idea that we have to hide things and have this big bang release? It's totally uh, contrary to success in terms of what I've seen. You know, I, I love this example at Clubhouse as well, right? Like how many people, founders are taking calls once a week to talk to their customers or uh, the crowd to not only get feedback on what they're thinking about doing, but make them co-creators in that process, right? Like th that's where you drive. And this is such a great transition as well, like users. The product only begins when you launch the first transaction, the first time some in, and in SaaS products, this is massive, right? The first time someone pays their monthly subscription to your product, that's the beginning of the journey. It's not the end of the journey and their experience of using the product, connecting co to community, building a relationship with you through the product you're creating and the more features you're bringing to them based on what they're looking for, what's missing. You know, this is one of the reasons we started Nobody Studios as well, right? The values are people first, crowd first and transparency. So all the companies we create in the studio, we just launch them as quickly as possible. So they're in market and the crowd will give us feedback about whether it works or not, what's missing or not, or even better, the crowd will give us ideas about what type of companies we should be creating in the future. So people have a chance to not only influence, to collaborate, because, you know, the studios is crowdfunded, they can actually own equity in every single company we ever create. Like it's this whole different paradigm for company creation. And I love this idea of stakeholder capital. Everyone who contributes gets a piece of the upside. Like that's amazing. Why would we have these closed archaic systems to your shareholder value, a small group of people in smoke-filled rooms that own the company and decide what is built and don't tell anyone and have these sort of big bang releases. It's just so fascinating to hear you share how that is showing up 
across the board, right? It's not just in the product development, but it's the the marketing and the brand and the experience. And it's just so uh, really inspiring to hear you share some of those stories and great questions for people to sort of reflect on as well. Really interesting. You're nodding furiously that folks won't be able to see on the sort of the listening. So I'm curious to hear what you're, what's on your mind now. I think your studio idea is very intriguing. It really takes crowdsourcing to the extreme. And what's fascinating to listen to and will be fascinating to observe is the velocity of your program, the extent to which you can quickly bring to market these offerings and have this tolerance for them being wrong. So we're circling back to the very beginning of our conversation, because if you're defensive, that model will not work. But if you're open to the feedback and treat it as a growth opportunity and look to it as one of you're seeking, it's a curiosity versus seeking validation. You're very authentically seeking input on the different versions versus putting something out and looking for feedback. That's a different mindset. And sometimes when we ask for feedback, one of the problems with that model is we are trained to believe, although we say constructive feedback and we say feedback is a gift, I think many of us are trained to be looking for and focused on the negative components. But in actuality, if you treat it as an opportunity for curiosity, you're seeking input. So the good, bad, and the indifferent is all equal. So I'm intrigued and look forward to following your progress with the studios. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Right. We're, we're trying to build 100 companies in five years. That means we'll have to build a thousand that nearly make it, but didn't. And we'll need 10,000 that could have made it and never did. And 100,000. And there's no way a small group of people can create that velocity, as you're describing, and quality. Right. And then I think it's one of the reasons why people first and crowd first is so, so are key to the values, because no one will be able to create this on their own. And that's why it's called Nobody Studios, because it's going to be everybody and nobody. Exactly. So thank you again so much, Margaret, for coming to share so much of your wisdom with us. It's really fascinating. I've just got super smarter. I'm going to try and be simpler about how I communicate too as well. <laughs> it's been really a gift as well to hear so much of your insights. So thank you very much for sharing. Uh, it's inspiring. I can only recommend people continue to follow your amazing panels and podcasts on people who are interested in this space. And you bring such a great, broad, diverse group of people to it. So thank you very much for that. And thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Best of luck, Barry, with your podcast. And thank you for the opportunity.